I'm Seth Kahn. And I'm Mark Levy. And welcome to Planet of the Associations. Hey, hey, we did a little inversion there, but that's okay. You know what? We were I thought you were going to go wah, 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 wah. We're going to call this episode Phenomenology, but we've changed the name to Mark's Right and I'm Wrong, which is a much more accurate description, you know, just FYI. Right. But the reason that we're here is because Planet of the Associations is all about what your association is going to be doing in three years, not in 100 years, not in 500 years, but in X plus three years. So wherever you are now, three years from now, we're going to be talking about the trends that are going to be most important to you. Also, we tend to wander far afield. In fact, we pretty much stay far afield. That's because all innovation happens at the periphery, and we're going to leave it up to you to actually connect the dots and figure out how to apply this to your organization. Although we will be talking about the association dynamics quite a bit as we're going through this. So, Beautiful. So we we had talked about Seth and I kind of huddle for the, for a couple of minutes before each session. What or should we talk about? So we were talking. We were going to talk about a concept uh, that I just feel is super important when I'm working with clients, and that's the idea of accuracy. Right. So this episode is larger. So one of the things I do, right, I'm this differentiation expert. I'm this guy who teaches people how to write, write books, write speeches, write policies, all kinds of things. And they often come to me uh, with documents. I, I, I ask them to write stuff up and they'll come to me with documents and they'll say, like, this idea is great. You know, they'll they'll write that in the document. This is great. This is awful. This is like all this kind of stuff. Uh, uh, you know, this is value creating all kinds of different things. And I say there's nothing wrong with those words. I use those words myself. But the problem with those words is that they are they're not bad. It's that they're inaccurate. That if you say something's great, I don't really understand why you're saying it's great or how it's great. If you're saying it's value creating, I'm not quite sure what you mean by that. So I often get them. It's not about taking a word that makes it seem like this this planetary success, this gigantic, huge success or this huge, you know, corruption of things. It's this idea of what can you say here that's accurate? And there's various forms of accuracy. And then I, I want to hear from you, Seth, what you think on this. Like, so, for instance, let's say a writer wants to wants to write about uh, someone who's having a drink. So you can say they're having a drink or you can say they're having a soft drink or you can say they're having a soda or you can say that they're having a cola. Or you can say they're having a Coke or you can say they're having a Coke Zero or a bottle of Coke Zero or a can of Coke Zero. There's various forms of accuracy and it depends on the situation and, you know, what form of accuracy that you want to use. And as simple as I'm making the sound right now, when it comes to differentiation, the idea is there, too, because when you start too high on the ladder of benefits, you know, like this, this will increase your sales or this will, whatever it is like the high and abstract, there's not a lot of room for differentiation there because everyone's claimed that stuff. So it's more about what's something specific and accurate 
What are all the specific and accurate things that we can say about what your work does? That's why another reason is uh, another thing I do is often if people don't know what to say about their work, their association or their brand or whatever it is, you know, I just have them start listing facts, F-A-C-T-S. I spell that out because I have this New York way of saying things, even though I've lived in New Jersey and Pennsylvania for many years, but I still I come from New York. So facts, it's like just start listing facts. I'm not necessarily looking for the world's most important facts, but just list start listing factual things about what it is you're doing, because when you're listing facts, you're more likely to be accurate about what it is that you're saying. It's accuracy. It's literalness. Seth, take it away. So, you know, this was a, a new idea to me because I used to think of, you know, if, if I said something was great and that it was, in fact, somehow in its nature, great, that that would be accurate. But what I'm hearing and what I'm thinking as a result of this conversation is that accuracy is about precision. It's about it's about focusing in on something that's of critical importance. In other words, I can say, you know, we're in the world and I'm alive. And, you know, that's not going to be a benefit statement. That's not going to be a value proposition. It might be true. It's just too big, too general. It doesn't give me anything to grab onto. So, for example, I was sharing a frustration with a chef who was uh, producing his own show. And every time he would taste the food, he would say, this is good. And it was like, that's not what I want to hear from a chef on a food show. I want to hear the aftertaste dissolved over a, a good three or four seconds there. And the sweet notes emerged as the sour notes dissipated. You know, I want something. So that's a level of accuracy that drives me to say, oh, I understand what the value of watching this show and listening to this expert is. He's going to help me appreciate food in a more, much more nuanced way, as opposed to just saying, this is good. I mean, the third time that he said that, I wanted to stop watching the show, right? Right. Because I don't know, I don't know what he's putting in his mouth. Is it ice cream or a steak? I can't tell. Right? right. You know, right. this is well, good. Okay. right. Great point. And again, it's not like you should stop using words like "good" or I'll often, especially if I'm writing someone an email, I'll say, "Oh, that's super cool," and all kinds of stuff like that. But if I was writing for public consumption, I would say something like, "Oh, it's super cool," and then here's why. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's right. that. And and then often you can cut the super cool out. Like yes. if you get the proper, if you get the proper accuracy in the image or the words that you put down, then the super cool becomes superfluous. Um, but like where the where does this fit, do you think, when it comes to associations? How would they use this idea of being accurate? I think it's a skill set that every leader needs to develop. I mean, I have sat in so many meetings where the CFO will come out and put up a huge spreadsheet on the PowerPoint slide and say something along the lines of, clearly we see that, right? It's obvious that. And the reality is, is that the people in the audience do not have training in financial matters. The people in the audience have not been staring at the spreadsheet for three hours the night before. The people in the audience don't have the context that the CFO is bringing strategically to interpret the data. They don't have any of that. And so, no, it's not true that clearly we see that or it's obvious that it's obvious to the speaker. But what I want is an accurate description of why this spreadsheet is relevant to what, you know, what we're doing right here. 
And I want him to make his expertise visible. I want him to be explicit. I want him to educate me, help me see it through his eyes so that I too can look at that spreadsheet and understand the relevance. So I think leaders really need to kind of, uh, you know, push themselves to be as accurate as possible when they're delivering messages. Right, right. Uh, By the way, um, if you went to certain editors and you had a document that had a lot of these generalities in, this is how important this concept is. What they may write in the margin at each point is they would say lazy. Uh, So this is like there's a true value judgment here. It's like, oh, yeah, this is fantastic. Lazy. You know, you know, like that kind of thing. Uh, so if, um, if you're explaining to your team or marshalling the efforts of your staff around a particular initiative and you're lazy, then it's no surprise that you're not going to get, uh, you know, a precise response from the collective. Right. Because they're all all over the place trying to understand what the heck you mean by using those generalities. Right. Well, it reminds me, I know the quality movement is not a popular movement. I don't even know that it's still around because right when when some companies uh, went bankrupt that had won the Malcolm Baldridge Quality Award, uh, it kind of tanked it a little. But maybe quality is still around. And, uh, uh, you know, the the movement, the idea. And um, I remember, though, I think it was Philip Crosby. Uh, who's an excellent writer, quality guy. Um, Crosby said something like uh, uh, that you need to define quality. Uh, you know, that like we can't just say, oh, that's quality and that isn't. It's like, what do you mean by quality? How many failures per thousand? How many, you know, what's it look like? What's it feel like that you really, you have to do so that everyone can be on the same page on this. And I mean, if it it seems like we're, we're like beating a dead horse here, accuracy is the reason why, and I'm staring at my microphone listener as if I'm staring at you. So I apologize. Uh, uh, But the reason why you like the books you like is because of their accuracy. The reason why you like the movies you like is because of their accuracy. I would argue your friends or so like the the ideas that they're talking about or so there's something about how they're talking about them, that it creates an accuracy that you can grab onto, that you can write, that they take their subjective experience, phenomenology. They take their subjective experience uh, and they codify it in a way that other people can grasp onto and be a part of. And it reminds me, Seth, we were talking uh, that you feel one of the reasons why you are you are a lover of knowledge management. And early on in your life was you wanted things, you wanted certainty in things, right? That like, like sometimes things would happen and you'd wonder like, where did that come from? You know, so you, it made you nervous or you casted that out. It's like, yeah, let's find certainty. And so you, you made a career out of, out of mining the world for knowledge. And it all came from this idea of, of being accurate. Right. Yeah. Right. When I was a kid. So my mother was a schizophrenic and it it really bloomed when I was about 10 years old. And at the age of 10, you're still very much dependent on your parents to interpret the world for you. And it became very clear to me that my mother was having hallucinations, audio and visual hallucinations. And so suddenly I felt threatened. Like I didn't know what was real and what wasn't because my chief interpreter, 
here was malfunctioning. I mean, to put it in kind of analytical terms, I mean, obviously there was a lot of emotional turmoil wrapped up in that, but nonetheless, I was trying to get a grasp on what's real and what's not. And so uh, knowledge and, and how we know uh, it became important to me. And it's something that stayed important to me all the way up through my professional career, where I was involved with organizations that were trying to have impact on the world. And I want to ask the question, so how do we know that it's impact? How do we get beyond this is fantastic, this is good, those lazy descriptions and be able to accurately identify? And there's and there's and I want to give an example of something that you just said when you talked about the importance of codifying something and how that gives you the ability to grab onto it. And this is a story from uh, a lunch that I had with John Cotter, who is one of the world's leaders in the space of change. And he told me about a, uh, a new CEO who assumed the helm at an organization that produced surgical gloves. And at the time that he was there, the uh, the, the uh, defect rate in the gloves that they were creating was 1%. And one of his vice presidents came to him and said, this, this is untenable, we can't do this. And, and the entire senior team, including the CEO said, what do you mean? 1% defections? Like that's fantastic. I mean, we should be fine with 1% defections. That's such a low number, relatively speaking. Well, they produced 300,000 gloves a day. So what this vice president did, who was concerned, was he got a cardboard box and he filled it up with 3,000 gloves and he brought it into the next meeting and he dumped the 3,000 gloves on the table. And he said, this is how many people we're putting at risk of HIV every day. And that was now he made it explicit. He codified it in a way that they could grab a hold of it. And as a result of that, they were able to get to 1% of 1%. So in other words, one ten thousandth defection, right? Because they pushed the manufacturing plant to excel, seeing that number of gloves up there. Well, and since you, you bring up this story about this physical demonstration of uh, uh, which in and of itself is accuracy, like because it's the actual thing itself. It reminds me years ago, 20 years ago, I was at a conference and one of the speakers was talking about how she got in to speak. I think I could have this wrong, but something like this, like she wanted, she was trying to get into a Burger King, like home office. She wanted to do a gig with Burger King, like at the highest levels. And uh, she couldn't get in uh, she couldn't get an invite there or whatnot. So what she did was she went around over the course of a month or so and she ate it like 20 Burger Kings and she saved the register tapes, the long register tapes. And she went to the home office with these 20 register tapes in her hand, like all not neatly done, but like all over the place. And said, and it was like in the past three weeks, I've eaten at 20 of your restaurants and I've found a couple of things that I think you're going to be find really important. And I'd like to talk to you about them. And they made time to speak to her because right. she was holding up these 20 register tapes. And, you know, it was this act. So it was a dramatic demonstration. But it was also like, oh, I believe you because it's accurate. Right. Like you've got the you've got our register tapes there. I believe you ate those meals. You're in this field. You may have something to share with us. So it was a form of accuracy. By the way, we were talking before and we might continue this on another uh, another session. But I was talking before of 
for 20 years, I've taught people, right? Differentiation guy taught people about backstory, about how to use backstory to get their employees psyched, to get the marketplace psyched or so forth. And early on when I was doing this, there were not a lot of people talking about backstory. And so it was almost like I had to talk to my clients, help them come up with their backstory about why they do what they do. It was almost like just some nicety to them. You know, it was like an after dinner mint like when you're leaving the restaurant the little rainbow mint like yeah. today it was like a rainbow mint. it's like oh that's cute you know like okay whereas i knew its importance forever and but the big difference between me and lots of people who do backstory is a lot of people say ah your backstory like here's the story that shows why and to me it's the idea of that actually does a disservice to reality to phrase it like that, because you're made up of lots of different ideas and experiences and a lot of different people have helped you and a lot of different people have, you know, different resources and the world is very complex. So to think that there's one single story that can explain your entire being in something is to me, maybe for like one percent. Right. Like the th I'll throw 3000 surgical gloves in front of you, maybe for like 1% of the people that's true. But for 99% of us, we have a lot of stories that go into why the work we do is so important. So what your backstory is, it's one of those stories that's particularly vivid and interesting that you raise to emblematic proportions. But you know what I mean? Like, I like to talk about it that way. It's the idea, like, here's a story I think is emblematic of why I do this work, why it's so important to me, right? It's not like, here's my reason for being. It's like, right, right. here's here's one of the things that have gone in to why I'm alive. You know, right. and that, but the point I want to make is to me, that just has to do with accuracy. Yeah. It's yeah. like, oh yeah, you're saying this is the reason? Like, okay, that's a little inaccurate. You know, right. right. Well, I was just going to respond in, with the exact same thought, which is that in order to be able to raise something to emblematic importance, you have to be accurate about the context and the and the reason that you're present. What it is it that you're trying to do? Right. Because we do have a million different backstories. We do have a, a million different narratives about who we are and what makes us, you know, and most of it is frankly irrelevant to whatever the task is that's in front of you. So the question is, if you're an organization that wants to have a brand, if you're a consultant who wants to be known for a particular skill set, you have to be able to zero into that thing, which is accurate, that promise that you can deliver on, right? That's specific enough that your audience is going to find it compelling. That's, that's really what people want to know. What is, what's the problem you're going to solve for me? And, 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 and am I going to, do I believe that you can do that? Well, to the extent that you lack accuracy, that's just going to diffuse out and people aren't going to be attracted to it. Well, that's right. But by the way, people misread and they mishear all the time anyway. Right. So even right. if you're accurate, they're going to misread you, but you better your chances of that not happening. Right. If you're accurate and you become more compelling when you're accurate. Anyway, more for the next time. This is Planet of the Associations. I'm Mark Levy. And I'm Seth Kahn. And we'll see you next time. Take care.